Welcome to The Lens with me, Sarah Travers. The Lens is a business in the community podcast in partnership with One Young World. I'm so delighted that our guests today are Camilla Dreyer, Managing Director of Citizenship, Sustainability and Responsible Business at Accenture, and Dewey Valiente, Sustainability Officer for the Panama Tourism Authority and One Young World Ambassador. Now, in this episode, we are exploring nature and biodiversity. We'll be looking at the role businesses, big and small, can play in supporting biodiversity, accelerating climate action and building the resilience of economies around the world. We'll also see how one of our guests, Dewey, is amplifying the voice of his community in Panama and highlighting the impact industry is having on Indigenous communities. So let's get stuck into this uh, conversation. Camilla, Dewey, welcome to The Lens. Camilla, if we start with you, first of all, uh, you've had, looking at your uh, bio, an impressive career in the area of corporate citizenship and sustainability. If you'd like to tell our listeners today a wee bit about yourself and your career to date. Sure. Thank you, Sarah. I, I think when you put it like that, career sounds like such a, a grandiose term um, for what feels perhaps um, on a day to day basis, more like a series of uh, happy accidents as a result of really just always trying to see that opportunities to, to play a small part in, in making the world a better place. I started out in this line of business before corporate responsibility and, and corporate sustainability were really common currency. It was over 15 years ago. Uh, and it's been a real privilege to be part of that journey and growing up as part of that family, which is now a much, much, much bigger community than we were just uh, 15 years ago. Before I came to Accenture and, and into this role and team in the corporate world, I was working in politics and with NGOs and always with that mission to just try and play a small role in some way uh, in really improving the, the world around us. And you know, I was much younger then, we all were 15 years ago, but I guess I was also a bit of a, a revolutionary. And I really came to business, I think, with a bit of cynicism and an intent really to give it a couple of years to learn what I could about the other side, so to speak. And, and perhaps if I'm really honest about it, a bit of an intent or inclination to try and bring the system down from within. The system is still standing, but I think uh, importantly, it's so much better in so many ways. And it's been just a phenomenal journey to see how businesses in that time have gone from doing a little bit of good on the side because they could, uh, or wanted to, to really driving sustainability and purpose through everything that they do, because we must uh, and we have to. So it's been a really great challenge and opportunity to be part of that evolution. So you say career, it feels more that perhaps it was a bit of a whim <laughs> taking a punt on something that has turned into to more of a mission. And, and that's a mission really to try and change the face of business uh, and the role that business can and is now expected to play in the world. Well, brilliant. And I love that, a series of happy accidents. And, and you mentioned there about, I suppose, your activism, really. So infiltrating business, but realising that actually you need to work together and you can affect change. So park those thoughts and we'll come back to you again in just a second, Camilla. But Dewey, I know you're a proud member of the Guna Indigenous Peoples of Panama. And I'd love you to tell us a little bit about your home. I believe that you were one of the first Indigenous territories in Latin America to be displaced by climate change? People call me Dewey, which means um, in our language, the spirit who guides dead people. And 
I have been a climate activist for the last seven years, but I've been involved in issues related to indigenous rights and cultural heritage since a very young age. And I was also very blessed with the opportunity to study in Switzerland. I studied hospitality management and tourism, envisioning already the opportunity that could be tourism for indigenous communities in my country. Even though I have been involved in cultural issues since a very young age, I did not know what uh, climate change was until 2014 when I attended the One Young World Summit in Dublin, in Ireland. And it was there when I realized that the Guna people, our people, were the first documented case of a displaced community because of the rising tides. When I was listening to the former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, talking about climate justice and the fact that some communities would have to be compensated in some way because of the result caused by multinationals and and countries that pollute and have been polluting in the last decades, Then I also faced a a very hard reality, and that was the fact that I won't be able to tell or show my grandkids the islands where we come from. And then I made my personal mission to make awareness of climate change and to try to find solutions to the problems, and that's what I've been doing in Panama. Incredible work, Dewey. And, uh, you know, having Mary Robinson talking about this and on your side is absolutely where you need to be. We need to be getting these messages out there. Describe the islands to those who don't know. What has actually happened? Well, we live in the northern coast of Panama in the Caribbean Sea. And we are an autonomous indigenous community. We have our own culture, beliefs, uh, cosmovision, and, and way of living that is what you might normally call now in, in a Western world a sustainable lifestyle or a carbon neutral or even in some cases carbon negative uh, lifestyle. But even though we have been living in these very small islands, that the islands are no more than a meter and a half tall in most cases, so are very, very small islands. Uh, Even though we have been living in a very sustainable lifestyle for decades or centuries, we are facing the problems caused by climate change and specifically the racing tide. So there are months during the year where the islands are totally flooded and kids cannot go to school, of course, and it affects the lifestyle of the people. They cannot go fishing and they have even problems sometimes with the the amount of rain or the dry seasons throughout the years. So there are many effects of climate change that we are facing. And even though we have not been polluting as much as the rest of the world, it is clear and science has proof that communities like us are the first ones that are going to be affected by climate change. And I know, Dewey, that you took to the Accenture stage at COP in Glasgow, which seems such a long time ago now, but you spoke at that event. People were really moved by your presentation. And I'm just wondering, because this seems so far away to so many people, a very small group of people, but there are Indigenous peoples all over the world who are suffering, are facing 
the same displacement as your people. And we need yes. to understand that it's everybody's responsibility and especially business, which is the focus of this podcast. Exactly. One of the most difficult things that we have to face is communicating the problem. What can you expect from the people in the communities where there is no internet or no uh, media? They don't know what is happening. But the same happens also in the cities, in the big cities. People that are highly educated do not understand what is causing climate change and what are the effects of climate change is having in local communities in developing countries and what are the changes that climate change will have in the future in their own communities or cities. And Camilla, what then do you feel that a company like Accenture and other you know, global giants in business, how are they positioned to help with this challenge right now? Big question. It is a big question. I think the first step really is to understand and recognize that deep dependence of business on nature and recognizing that nature is actually a key ally of business and at the most simplistic level that without nature that there can't be business. And interestingly, uh, and Dee, you might have heard this at COP, Accenture recently launched a UNGC a CEO study, which we do annually, surveying CEOs about their attitudes around sustainability. And this time round, only 21% of CEOs said that they see biodiversity loss as a risk to their business. And I think we found that really quite astounding. And I think it reflects what Dee said before, we need to communicate the problem around nature uh, and biodiversity loss, just as we did with climate change. And I think that survey really reflects that we really have a long way to go uh, in establishing a much clearer link between business and natural resources and, and ecosystem services, because that really is a figure that should be 100%. The WEF, the World Economic Forum, they estimate that $44 trillion, that's more than half the world's GDP, is dependent on natural capital and ecosystem services, and that biodiversity loss is the third biggest risk facing the planet by severity. So it's really not just an environmental crisis and a crisis for, for people, socially, as Dewey describes for, for his community, but it's also very much an economic crisis. And that's where business really comes in and has a huge opportunity and responsibility to play a very active role. We know that addressing the, the climate and biodiversity emergencies requires the complete transformation of our economies and societies, how we live and work and, and how we do business. And again, the, the WEF has done an interesting study putting a $10 trillion economic opportunity on transforming some of our key economic systems. And there's no denying that the private sector will have to play a really critical role in that and we'll have some clear incentives to start building much more nature positive products, solutions and services for people and clients. Yet action is still lagging and, and Dee, we talked about it in relation to climate change, but whilst um, sustainability experts believe that we need to move from a, a sort of really laser tight focused almost fixation with net zero, we really uh, need the second bounce of the ball at the next horizon to be about being nature positive. But there's still just a real kind of say do gap. Businesses still don't really know where to start that journey towards nature positivity. And there are a whole host of challenges associated with that one being that with nature and biodiversity, unlike carbon and, and climate change, we don't have that one standard 
easily measurable unified measurement and all of those global science-based targets and, and frameworks, et cetera, that we can just get behind. Biodiversity is almost by definition so much more varied and diverse. And we don't have that, you know, one international standard or goal that companies can get behind. And so at worst, that becomes a convenient excuse for inaction. At best, it's a really complicating factor for those companies who do want to lead, who do want to be transparent and authentic in understanding the impact of their activities as they relate to nature. And I think that was one of the reasons Accenture agreed to partner on a pro bono basis with the Council for Sustainable Business in the UK to really help them in their mission to ensure that nature positive becomes the next net zero for businesses. And we work together to pull together what we're calling the nature handbook for business to really provide practical guidance and advice for businesses to start taking action today, even in the absence of a global consensus on measurement standards and all of that goodness. What are the kinds of things that we could do today to start that journey towards being much more nature positive? And we did quite a decent job of really uh, positioning nature as an ally of business uh, and really hammering home that point that actually, if we don't take action now, business is at risk of extinction. Climate change has been on the agenda for some decades. If we're honest, it took us a while to get our heads around what needed to be done. And we don't really have that same luxury of time with biodiversity. We are desperately in need of action right now. We have more than 140 businesses who since COP have stepped up to say they're committed to this journey towards nature positivity, even though they don't have all the answers at this stage. They're starting to really that journey around understanding their impact and embedding considerations um, of nature impact into some of their, their business planning and decision making. Tell us more about the nature handbook then, Camilla. What practically, I know we don't have the framework as yet, but we have to start somewhere. We wanted to try and come up with a simple-ish framework that businesses could work with. And we anchored the handbook in the five key threats to biodiversity. So pollution, over-exploitation, change in land use, invasive non-native species, uh, and then, of course, climate change. And with that framework, we gave businesses a sort of simple four-step journey that begins with really trying to understand the impact that you as a business have on nature. And for some businesses, that's really direct and you can see it. And for others, it's much more indirect. Like Accenture would be an example of that, where uh, most of the impact we would have on biodiversity occurs in our supply chain. So we really need to invest in working with our suppliers to understand those impacts better and work out how we can collaborate, perhaps to come up with different solutions. Secondly, to identify any opportunities to reduce harm. And again, that's looking at all of your, your different activities, products, services, advice, etc., and really working out how any of the decisions that you're involved in could be contributing to biodiversity loss and how you might change that. And then thirdly, seeking opportunities, not just to reduce harm, but to take it one step further. And this is why I guess we get into the sort of being nature positive, seeking opportunity to protect, restore and regenerate nature and wherever you can. So as part of our own carbon management program to really invest in nature-based solutions that restore and regenerate nature whilst also providing, you know, green jobs and other co-benefits. And then finally, 
encouraging businesses to think about the influencing power they have and their own ecosystem of clients, suppliers, customers, whatever it might be, and really engaging others in how you might promote nature smart behaviors and actions. So that could be campaigns that companies might run to educate their customers about um, what um, nature-related um, impacts um, they might have in the way that they dispose of a product, um, for example, or what happens when you flush um, wet wipes down the toilet, for example. So you could, um, you know, run um, customer campaigns about um, those types of topics. So we cover those sectors that have the biggest, uh, from a UK perspective, impact, um, negative impact on biodiversity, and really encourage everyone to just be um, open and transparent, uh, as I said about the fact that we're on a journey, um, all of us, um, and it's a sort of crowdsourcing situation where we'll continue to update that handbook as, as you know, the best um, and freshest case studies of really inspirational actions that companies are taking come to life. Nadiwi, not only are you an incredible climate activist, you're also an entrepreneur. Actually, you have an ecotourism business. Can you tell us more? Yes, that's right. I was very little when I had contact with tourism for the first time. I come from, from these little islands in the Caribbean coast of Panama. And when I was very young, I used to take tourists around the island and, and talk to them about the way we lived and why in some houses there were skulls of animals outside and that represented that inside there was a hunter living. And I realized from a very young age that showing this uh, to visitors could give me money. Like they would give me a dollar or two dollars each time I would just go around for them talking about, about my daily lifestyles. <laughs> in the island and I was like nine years old when I realized that and I started thinking about how we could keep our cultural values and even use tourism as a way to regenerate them and then I went to study in Switzerland I came back to Panama and I started working in the government in the Ministry of Tourism but at the same time I started a hostel specially targeted for conscious travelers and everything is based on sustainability and creating value for local communities. Well, obviously, you know, to even get to your country, it does require something of a large carbon footprint. So I'm interested to, to hear a little bit more. When you get there, you can mm -hmm. live very uh, simply? Yes, and, and not only that, you have to take into account that Panama is one of only three carbon-negative countries. And we are carbon negative because we have more ecosystems uh, storing carbon and sequestering carbon than the amount of carbon we produce because we are not a uh, commercial or we don't have factories around the countries. But then when you go to the communities, you can really experience a very simple lifestyle that will reconnect you with nature. Because something that has happened especially the last two years, is that people haven't been able to connect with nature. And there are some scientists that also state that this lack of connection with nature is what's causing the biggest problem we have right now, not only climate change, but as Camila mentioned, biodiversity loss. We do not know what we have in the forest and, and not even talking about the ocean that hasn't been explored at all. 
We do not know how rich the ocean and the forests are, but we're still losing some species that haven't even been discovered in some places due to this lack of connection we have with nature and and the way we interact with our surroundings and the way we have structured economy in some countries and in some areas of the world. We are in Panama and indigenous people, especially, we are connected to nature and we take ourselves as part of nature. And in the case of the Kuna, for example, we believe the ocean is our grandmother. And the same way we take care of our family and our mothers and grandmothers, of course, we are going to take care of of the ocean. And I think that if people in Western cultures and CEOs in, in companies get to understand that and get to really get in contact with nature and be part of nature, we'll then understand why we have to take care of it in order for us to survive. We talk so much about climate change and then we seem to talk separately about biodiversity, but the two are absolutely inextricably linked. I heard it said that, you know, if we have no nature, we have no society, we have no livelihoods and we have no business. That's right. In some countries, we are still missing a lot of work in protecting biodiversity and also regenerating biodiversity because At least in Panama, we have already understood, especially in the communities, uh, rural communities, that having a tree or a forest is more valuable than cutting it for the sake of selling the wood. Not only because of the importance it has for us at a spiritual level, but also because of the economic value it does have. And this is something very difficult to understand and very difficult to give metrics to. And we haven't been able yet to totally comprehend and understand all the economic values that preserving nature has. And this is one of the most important things I think that we have to work. Uh, And this has to be a, a work that involves not only the enterprises and the communities, but also science, art, storytellers, in order for us to actually communicate the whole problem. Do you feel as well that that is your role, to be that storyteller? Definitely. Uh, It's definitely the stories that are going to move people and are going to make people take action. And so people from the city understand what's happening in the communities and then can also start taking daily steps in order to change trends globally so that the market can change and and we can actually have a more sustainable lifestyle as well. And I think, David, that is so powerful, the work that you do there. We now do have report like that the one Professor Dasgupta did into the economics of biodiversity. And so I do think we have emerging means of really placing an economic and dollar value on nature. But I think there's a huge gap for, for the business community around what you describe, the sort of intrinsic or spiritual or sort of human value in nature. And I think that work that you described there is so important to kind of win not just the, the minds, but the hearts on this kind of topic. Yes. And this, what you just said, is very important. The, the Gupta report was made in UK and it's a very good basis for all the other countries to understand why nature is important. But we have to also start integrating 
developing countries that do not speak English or, or like have other native native languages yeah. because unfortunately the knowledge and the science and all the advancement that we have so far hasn't reached the local communities that are the one facing the problems now we do have to to put communities at the heart of business and work around that when you look at a survey carried out by business in the community the right climate for business An interesting fact, 72% of people want businesses they buy from to take climate action, but almost two-thirds do not trust businesses to do what they promise, Camilla. I can imagine that to be to be true. And I think that reflects that businesses still do struggle to translate some of that investment into a customer proposition. I think some of this conversation, whether it's around carbon and climate, um, or nature biodiversity, it tends to become very technical very quickly because we're not perfect and none of us are. We open ourselves up to these greenwashing accusations, the the cynicism from clients and consumers. So I think we would welcome much more um, international agreement on some of these standards and measures so that we can be much more transparent. And I think there's a role for companies as well in really making it easier for the consumer to make the right choice, the sustainable choice by making that information available, by making those products and services available to all, not just those who might be able to pay a premium for those products, but also making sure that those products are as attractive and, you know, as beautiful, if not more attractive than, you know, the the alternative. So again, I think there's a huge opportunities for businesses who want to lead in this space to actually capitalize on that consumer desire to see more sustainable products and services available to them. I mean, people are cynical, aren't they? And they the greenwashing and what, what can we really believe this and how are you really a net zero uh, company, et cetera, et cetera. I know 56% of the population is, is urban, but even just looking after and starting in your own community, what can you do? Does that make a difference? Camilla, have you any examples of things you might even be doing in Accenture? Yes, we're in the position of being a huge global organisation with 674,000, I think, is the, is the wow. latest number <laughs> of employees. You know, And that's just a, an enormous amount of human capital and just passion. And so I guess we feel that we're in a really privileged position of of being able to provide opportunities for all of those people to channel their passion for these types of topics. So we run things like sustainability innovation challenges where we really challenge our people to bring their innovation and and passion for things like sustainability to create new products and services. And in fact, one of the teams that won this year was a team based in Scotland who created this app that allows you to to reimagine the environment that you're in. What would it look like if this particular field or, or area was rewilded? And that was really an attempt to engage people around this topic. And as you said, do we start that education around the dramatic biodiversity and, and nature loss that we've seen over the last 50 years? What would it look like if we reverse that? But we also uh, have a huge opportunity and responsibility to really educate our people and create a real kind of workforce who are upskilled and confident in these sustainability topics. So we're committed to building all of our workforce SQ, as we call it, sustainability quotient, so that people in turn can bring that to their day-to-day work and decision-making as well as their personal lives and enabling them, as you say, Sarah, to make those little changes based on the knowledge that we're able to equip them with. And then 
Finally, I, th I think I, I mentioned earlier, we have a quite a robust volunteering program where we allow our people to take time off during working hours to, to do things that make sense to them uh, in their local community. And we make sure that we have a whole suite of eco-volunteering opportunities available to people who may wish to clean up local beaches or rivers, for example, or who might wish to participate in more digital opportunities to help uh, biologists to map local wildlife where of our employees might be using their digital devices or right through to, you know, getting a spade and planting trees in their local communities. And I think all of that helps with the connection to the land and the local environment, to that sense of actually being able to make a difference. And I think particularly as a business, connecting that to your work and day-to-day -day activity, I think is really powerful in helping our people to be the change agents that they want to be. And I think, Dewey, we just need to understand how important nature is. And I think the pandemic, would you agree, allowed a lot of people who had to just stop what they were doing and observe and be still and see the beauty and this whole ecosystem around us. We saw the images um, on the television of animals behaving in very different ways because the people weren't there, the pollutants weren't there. Do you feel we're at a better place now, Dewey, to spread this message and make sure that people don't go back to what it was before? I think the fact that in, in many countries people were locked down and were not able to continue with their normal or what used to be normal lifestyle. It's an opportunity for us to reconnect with ourselves. And I think many people, it's also very concerned about the way the whole world is going and, and, and the different problems, climate change, plastic pollution, biodiversity loss. All these problems are more strengthened in the mind of people. And also now that the regulations for traveling have been opening, for example, in Panama, we have seen a, a, a huge increase on tourists. But our tourists that do want to learn from the community, that want to experience pristine environments, and uh, from the government standpoint, we see this as an opportunity to teach about climate change. That's why our whole tourism model is based on climate action, but also as a mean to improve the lives of the communities, to give them access to better technologies to produce energy, to give them access to microloans to improve their houses so they, they can actually be hosting the, the different visitors and tourists that we are receiving from abroad. Now, COP26, as I said, seems like forever ago. You were both there, and I'm just wondering if you wouldn't mind both of you sharing any reflections from COP, any highlights or disappointments. Camilla? Yes, it was a bit of a mixed bag. On balance, I think we have to be optimistic. We didn't clearly get as far as we might have hoped uh, and we wanted to go on, on the issue of 1.5, tackling climate change and getting all of the national commitments in place. But we did see some really great and promising progress and, and mobilising finance. And I'd be really interested, Dewey, in your 
perspective on that, particularly in terms of financing support for the global south. I think we saw a lot of progress on mobilizing non-state actors. I think business showed up in greater numbers than ever before. And it was really great to see um, that there was broad agreement on this need for urgent uh, sustainability standards harmonization. I think that will really help to drive progress in business and to really give us confidence in general to be more ambitious about what we commit to and how we communicate our, our progress in that space. But to me personally, Personally, and in the context of this conversation, I think it was just such a big and fantastic step forward that nature was really elevated within that climate conference and that it was really recognised that we need to put as much focus on nature as we do on climate change in order to really create a sort of future planet and for us all to share. And it was brilliant to see that I think it was more than 100 world leaders really pledging to end deforestation by 2030. So I think some progress still yet to be made or to come good on, but I also think some really promising signs um, coming out of the COP. Was the glass half full for you, Dewey? I think there were very important moments. There was a lot of participation from indigenous and local communities, but I do still believe that not as much as we need. There were clear examples of indigenous peoples that were not allowed to get in or didn't get a badge to represent their communities or their countries. I'm very grateful with One Young World and Accenture for having me in the events that we conducted together. But I do think that we have to be doing this more and to be able to actually embrace all these communities, not only indigenous, but also African and Afro communities that are being the ones really struggling because of climate change. I think uh, nobody would argue with you there and those difficult conversations and we need to move on and and allow more voices to be represented. At Business in the Community, we're celebrating 40 years of supporting and challenging Uh business to think about how they can go faster, be braver Mm -hmm. and bolder in those responsible decisions and the big decisions they have to take. What that might look like for you in a climate positive world. Well, I think we have to start taking communities and people as part of the design process of our businesses from zero. We are not only thinking about the profits, but the effects that our business and our decisions make in the communities and therefore also in the environments around these communities. If we take uh, the communities as part of the core and we base the values of our businesses on protecting, regenerating, and and, and helping the communities, I think that will be a, a very good step for all businesses. So we have to change the mentality and the mindset, and we have to start putting the communities as the heart of all businesses. Camilla? I was going to say something um, slightly similar, actually, Dewey. It's a big ask, but I think we need to equip businesses with new ways of viewing value. Ultimately, we really need to focus on equipping businesses with new ways of viewing and articulating value. So it's not just a focus on the, the bottom line in terms of dollars, but really helping businesses to understand the social 
and environmental value that they're able to deliver through their products and services, engagement with their people, local communities, with nature, and really challenging companies to think not just about the extrinsic value, but also that intrinsic uh, value that Dewey mentioned earlier on. And I think that will be our next great challenge in terms of how we think of corporate returns on investment. And personally, what's the one thing that both of you are committed to move forward and take action to do something better? Camilla. Sarah, I'm going to say to my colleagues, great delight, I'm sure. I commit and pledge to continue being a real nuisance and agitator and always seeing if we can push further and asking those difficult questions about why we can't do things differently. And Dewey, same question to you. Well, I'm personally committed to improve the way I eat and and to always try to buy locally sourced uh, vegetables and seafood. I have to make sure that the seafood I eat, it's very, very well sourced and doesn't come from uh, bad practices. Very good. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us on a really interesting edition of The Lens today. I think change is definitely in the air. We weren't having these conversations about biodiversity before. We know that we need to. We need, as Camilla said, new ways of viewing and articulating value. And we have learned so much by just listening to Dewey's story and what needs to happen to save indigenous populations and the planet. Thank you so much for your company today. Thank you for having us, Sarah. Thank you very much.